Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Team West Covina podcast intro. I'm recording this a little bit after the main part of the podcast. It's currently February 16th, 2018, Friday, and it is a few hours before the finale of season three. I have not seen the finale yet, but I just wanted to jump in here since we had a pretty exciting week in the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend fandom. Rachel's tickets went on sale for the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend live tour, and it was a harrowing experience, but hopefully it's getting sorted. I saw she released three more shows uh, today, and I I think there'll probably be more to come, so I hope that everyone's able to attend. Uh, I wanted to let you guys know that I will be at the Chicago show, and I will also be at one of the LA shows, the LA show on April 10th. So if you'd like to come up and say hi or say a few words on the podcast, feel free to come find me. You can message and I can kind of hook you up, let you know what I look like. And and I'd love to say hi to everybody there. So I'm really looking forward to it. It was a great surprise on Valentine's Day to get tickets. So I actually have a surprise for you guys. I am doing a raffle for one face value ticket to the LA show at the Wilshire Ebell Theater. And what happened is once I actually got through and was able to get a ticket at a time, I just kept going back in and seeing if they would let me have one more or one more because friends of mine were doing this at the same time and they couldn't get through. And I'm I'm like, well, if I can get through, I'm just going to keep buying tickets because I'm not a bot and I can make sure they go to actual fans. I actually, I have a long history of ticket buying, so I'm really used to having to go through this process, and uh, I was able to get a few extra tickets for friends, and I ended up with one left, and I wasn't sure. We had to kind of figure out the count first and see if there were any left over, but as it turns out, there is one, and so I would like to raffle it off to anyone who is interested in attending. All you have to do is there's going to be podcast questions on this episode, as well as previous ones. They're posted on the Team West Covina Twitter and the Team West Covina Facebook. All I'm asking is that you go and answer one of those questions and or contribute to the crowdfunding for the podcast, which is at patron.podbean.com slash teamwestcovina and I will put a link in the show notes as well. You don't have to contribute to the crowdfunding. This is a raffle open to anybody. So whether you answer a question or whether you contribute, you all have equal chances to win. And I will do a drawing with everyone's names and I will let you know who the winner is and we will get you your ticket to the LA show. So I will be posting more about this on social media, and I hope that this helps somebody. The ticket, let's see. So the ticket I have left is in the orchestra section. It is row X. So if you're interested, uh, I'd be really happy to get this to a fan that deserves it. So that's about it for the intro. Looking forward to the finale tonight, and we'll continue on with the main part of the podcast. You do Hello and welcome to Team West Covina. 
of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend Podcast. I'm your host, Paisley, and today is Sunday, February 11th, 2018. This is episode two of the podcast, and today we're going to be discussing the episode, Josh's Girlfriend is Really Cool, season one, episode two. The episode aired on October 19th, 2015. It was written by Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna and directed by Don Scardino. The IMBD synopsis says, Rebecca meets Josh's friends and goes to great lengths to bond with his girlfriend, Valencia. Meanwhile, Paula begins devising schemes to get Josh and Rebecca together, and Greg struggles with his feelings for Rebecca. Again, I'd just like to offer up the spoiler warning. There will be spoilers all through the point that we're at now in the series. So if you haven't watched the whole thing through, um, I'd suggest that you do that first before continuing. So this episode is cringeworthy for me. We all have slightly different cringeworthy episodes with this show, but this one is cringeworthy in a good way, not an over-the-top way, because it rings true to life. But it's definitely hard to watch. I'd like to actually start out with the definition of bisensual, because this comes up over and over again in this episode. There's actually several definitions for this word, and the way I'm using it here and the way Urban Dictionary defines it is a person of any sexual orientation who enjoys non-sexual body contact, like massage or cuddling, with members of both sexes. There's also another definition out there, someone who is emotionally and romantically attracted to both genders. But I would say the word for that is spiromantic. Bisensual would not necessarily be to the point of romantic connection. It's more about being comfortable physically in a non-sexual way. So there's this overarching idea in the episode that involves Rebecca's bisensual, not bisexual, or girl crush reactions to Valencia. Rebecca's confusing being attracted to someone with wanting to be like them. It's very confusing to her where one ends and the other begins. We see Rebecca taking mental notes on what to eat to become as skinny as Valencia, i.e. wanting to be like her, but also thinking, no wonder Josh loves her, i.e. I want to be like her to get the guy. The belief that she has to be like Valencia in order to achieve her goals and dreams is pretty prevalent here. Rebecca actually flushes as she's processing all this almost feverishly. The obsession is real. Focusing on Valencia allows her to stop focusing on Josh so directly, which is probably a bit of relief for Rebecca. To be sure, she's still indirectly focusing on Josh, but perhaps this makes it easier for her to cope with. Valencia seems genuinely excited and grateful when Rebecca says she got her yoga studio, and when they hug, we see Rebecca both smell her and stroke her hair. As Rebecca says later in season three, she's not full-fledged bisexual, she considers herself low on the spectrum. So if it's not that, what is this about? The two of them wearing the same dress at Spiders symbolizes this inner conflict of Rebecca's. She wants to take over her identity. She both wants to be Valencia's friend and just be her, have Josh, feel pretty, etc. Is there some measure of her feeling bisexual towards Valencia and vice versa? I think so, although that's definitely up for interpretation. I think that's why it's easy for Rebecca to delude herself into thinking her intentions are 
100% noble because there is this genuine response to Valencia that she maybe didn't anticipate. Feeling close to her, really happy when Valencia says they're friends and means it. Happy, but also guilty. Rebecca's obsession with grammar is an ongoing joke, particularly throughout this episode. Is spiders plural or possessive? I totally think stuff like this all the time. Uh, well, I ultimately think Rebecca's a Gryffindor. She does have some Ravenclaw tendencies like this one. Turns out it's singular possessive on the club sign itself. Incidentally, later in the episode, when Valencia texts Rebecca, she puts the apostrophe in the wrong place at the end instead of before the S. A super subtle reminder that Valencia feels confident in her looks, but not her smarts, and it's vice versa for Rebecca. Except Rebecca thinks it's possessive plural after she sees Valencia's text, but that's not what it said on the sign. Later, Bex discovers a guy named Mr. Spiders owns the club. So I'm not sure it's cleared up after all. Seriously, how do you spell spiders and is it plural or possessive should be a crazy ex-girlfriend trivia question. Anyway, I'm a Ravenclaw. Moving on. Rebecca says, I hope that Josh isn't there at the club so that when I do my sexy dance moves, it's just for me. There's little hints of the song Put Yourself First coming through here. Incidentally, Paula's wearing a zebra shirt with little zebras all over it in the office. I never noticed that before. So when Rebecca tries to dodge the bouncer at Spiders by crawling inside, the people in line start filming her with their phones. So clearly she was embarrassing herself on YouTube from very early on. Paula wants to stay out and we hear that she's excited to dodge Scott. She told him she would be out all night having her period. Once there's no chance of seeing Josh, Rebecca ceases to be interested in hanging out with Paula. And this kind of thing later plays into Paula's fears that if they're not making plans about Josh, Rebecca won't want to hang out with her anymore. Rebecca says to Paula, I like alone time. I love alone time. She rephrases so that she sounds like the kind of person that's acceptable, the kind of person she wants to come off as, independent and confident. Rebecca is literally putting on a show and cultivating her image so much of the time, it's exhausting. The reality is much more depressing. She's sitting on the couch eating snacks. Again, like in New York, she's got bare walls, white couch, very little reflecting her own personality. Why is it always Rocky Road ice cream that girls eat when they're sad over a boy? Well, apparently, after the Wall Street crash of 1929, Dreyer and Edie gave the flavor its current name of Rocky Road to give folks something to smile about in the midst of the Great Depression. So it's actually a very apt flavor for someone to eat when they're feeling low. The grocery store scene in episode two is one of the best in the show, and it says so much in so little time. The fairy tale music when Rebecca sees Josh and how abruptly it winds down when Valencia walks over, just perfect. And then they take an everyday thing like the frost from the freezer, accentuating Josh like he's a rock star on stage. This is the way Rebecca views him. Marty's one of my favorite side characters. In this episode, he's actually billed as huge fro guy, so they must not have named him yet. We meet Josh and Greg's friends briefly here for the first time. Hector likes surfing. He's 202nd best surfer in the state. And white Josh is holding a flag. So at first it made me wonder, is it supposed to be nearing the 4th of July? 
We know it was spring or summer in New York when Rebecca left. It's very surface level when we first meet these two, um, when we think about how much they've developed in season three. In Valencia, one of the first things she says is, why is Greg talking to a homeless? So all of Josh's friends and his girlfriend seem judgy right away. He's really surrounded himself with, you know, very judgmental people. And while Josh can seem charming and get along with people well, you know, a part of him is pretty judgy too. Um, you know, you remember him calling Rebecca dramatic and weird in the first episode. So it's a little bit of a toxic environment that she's stepping in here. We hear Greg's sharp, sarcastic comments on Rebecca's looks and things of that nature. He sees her severely dressed down at the grocery store and goes, wow, in a critical judging way. And Hector too, when Rebecca says, hopefully next time I'll be, Hector goes better looking. And this is the first time he's met her. I mean, you know, maybe Greg told him what happened in, in which case he might have a little resentment towards her, but you know, it's, she's essentially a stranger. And then Greg goes, browser in aisle one. So there's really kind of bullying going on here. You know, when you're a girl and you're walking up to three guys that you don't know very well, or in some cases have never met before, you know, it's a little intimidating. It, it kind of really makes her want to slink off. Um, yet later at the club, Greg does a similar thing, but in a flirty way, asking Rebecca, how many bras are you wearing, by the way? Even when Greg is being mean, it's sort of his way of flirting, but the jibes that are said in a cruel tone also exude resentfulness because he doesn't believe a girl like Rebecca would truly be interested in him for a long period of time. We continuously see Greg put Rebecca down to gain the upper hand, which I tend to notice because that's a key trait of my Josh Chan. Although plot-wise he was in Josh's role, my Josh Chan was actually a mix between Greg and dominant Nathaniel when it comes to personality. He almost started out like Greg with some insecurities and sensitivity around rejection and grew into a dominant Nathaniel type once he was presented with opportunities. His personality was largely very different from Josh's, although he did engage in some of the same triangulation. So Josh here, he attempts to present himself differently to different people and kind of compartmentalize his life. He's willing to lie or misrepresent or omit in order to do it. Josh says, I think the ice cream is down here. And Valencia is like, what are you talking about, Josh? It's right in front of you. He clearly doesn't want Valencia and Rebecca to run into each other. And then he lies about how old they were when they met at summer camp, saying they were eight when they were actually 16. Right, Rebecca? Beck starts out saying, no, we were... And immediately Valencia narrows her eyes and looks suspicious, despite Bex not looking like a threat in the least. There's always the question, are girls like this overly paranoid or are they protective because they have to be? Is their bitch front part of their armor? Rebecca, meanwhile, is taken aback but tries to keep up and covers for Josh without understanding why he's lying. It's almost like Rebecca feels privileged that she's in on something with the guy that she knows the truth and the other girl doesn't. And sometimes that privileged feeling is enough that she'll cover for him in the moment or be willing to smooth things over. 
the problem is Josh will apply that behavior to anyone, maybe not right away, but at different times or in different scenarios. Eventually, Josh turns the same tactics on Rebecca. It's possible he wasn't just trying to keep Valencia from Rebecca, but also vice versa. When Josh last interacted with Rebecca, she had no idea he had a girlfriend. Although I don't think he seems very ashamed of it here. He introduces Valencia as his girlfriend. When Rebecca asks him about the fibs in private, Josh says, See, the thing with us at camp is that no one knows that, especially Valencia, so let's just keep it on the DL. Rebecca thinks it's because she looks like a homeless, and Josh, meanwhile, puts it on Valencia. Valencia, she sometimes sweats these things. When Rebecca says she'd like to be friends with her, Josh is immediately on the defensive, saying it's a bad idea. Just chill, okay? Again, putting it on Rebecca this time, subtly making her think she's overreacting so that she focuses on her own insecurities instead of what he's doing. It makes me wonder what he's telling Valencia in private. It's very subtle, all these little phrases, and Josh puts his hands on Rebecca's arms for a moment to kind of try to calm her down, and, you know, almost as if they were a couple. There's really such triangulation here, which we'll get into more in a later podcast. Uh, I just discovered this word kind of randomly, and it applies to so many situations I've struggled with and helped me to understand them better. This could easily all be unconscious on Josh's part, but he's aware of what he needs to do to make this work on some level. When you really look at it line by line, it's super shady, but Josh does it in such a charming, confident manner that Rebecca goes along with it. It's hard to call him out on it when it's this subtle. When Josh and Rebecca are talking privately, Marty's looking on in the background, overhearing their conversation to some extent. Greg is also confused because he assumed, understandably so, that Josh had met Rebecca in New York when he was recently living there for eight months. He originally seemed to think that they had dated or hooked up in New York and that they were newly apart, hence her behavior. Meanwhile, Rebecca wants to hide that she went on a date with Greg just to see Josh at a party, so she misleads and said that she and Greg met at home base, which is true, and that they're casual buds, which is kind of true, but not indicating a romantic connection to Greg, which displeases him even more. We also learn that Valencia chose her own name. She chose something unique because she probably didn't want to be another Maria. It's interesting that Valencia notes her name means brave, a Gryffindor trait, when we don't necessarily identify her with that house. I think it's similar to someone of Valencia's archetype wanting to be fierce. I know two girls that are kind of like the Valencia archetype in that way, and you know, both of them kind of identify with if they had to pick an animal that they were, they would pick like a panther or a leopard or some kind of big cat. You know, the the whole concept of being fierce uh, is really big. And it, it really comes down to protecting the people they care about or protecting what's important to them. Rebecca says that Garfinkel, her mother's maiden name, is the Yiddish word for diamond dealer, meaning that not only was the Garfinkel ring in her family for years, but it likely came from the family business at one point. Interestingly, in season three, we find out that the Garfinkel ring was fake all along. 
this thing that she's been aspiring to receive for years is actually worthless. This is another nod to the idea that Rebecca comes from a family who lies to make things seem better than they really are. Whether the original diamond dealer lied to his family about the value of the ring or Naomi lied to Rebecca about its value, the concept reverberates. Interestingly, Rebecca disobeys Josh immediately and tries to friend Valencia on Facebook anyway. Why do we think the urge to friend Valencia was stronger than the urge to do what Josh requested? I found that very odd and very interesting. You know, here's this guy that she moved across the country for, you know, she wants to get along with him. She wants him to like her. And she does the exact opposite of what he asked her to do, what he specifically asked her to do. Um, I actually made that a discussion question because I'd love to hear what you guys think. Also, Valencia's Facebook profile talks about yoga and how she tried a new energy kale smoothie from the juice bar. Valencia accepts Rebecca's friend request literally seconds after she sent it. It's a very frenemies thing. They both seem to want to creep on each other's profiles or find out more about each other. In the White Feather office, Rebecca says she thinks she and Valencia have so much in common. And when Paula asks what Vampire Weekend is, Rebecca says it's a weekend away with vampires. Paula's skeptical, and Rebecca says she read about it in The New Yorker, again trying to save face by falling back on how sophisticated she must be because she's from New York. She really doesn't like not knowing something, especially since her identity is so tied in with being smart, going to Harvard, and she believes she's a Ravenclaw at this point. This is basically what Rebecca feels she has to offer. It's, it's like her one thing in her head. And, uh, you know, she really tries to play it up because of that. Even when she's leaving the grocery store, she says, I'm just going to gracefully exunt pursued by a bear. So she makes a literary reference to a stage direction in Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. It can mean to make a quick getaway or an offstage death. She's throwing out these references throughout the episode. And finally, Greg actually calls her on it. And he's like, okay, we get it. You went to Harvard. So next we get the song, I'm So Good at Yoga. This is one of those early times in the show when everything clicked and I really got what they were doing, saw where they were going with it. This is one of the first times you see a musical number in the show that says what a character is thinking but not saying. Sometimes this is just what Rebecca is imagining they're thinking due to her own insecurities. And while that certainly has a hand in it here, I also believe Valencia is thinking a less specific version of this because when she does speak to Rebecca after class, they're both having a hardcore frenemy conversation. Some of the lines from the song, Rebecca sucks, made me laugh really hard. So did the nya 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 nya. <laughs> it was great. It was amazing. And uh, it really captures the inner monologue so well. They've got body shaming in here. You're fat. Lack of talent. I kiss my own hoo-ha. Can you do that? And sex appeal to guys. That stuff doesn't hurt at all. Um, plus Rebecca's deepest insecurity, rejection, and abandonment. My father didn't leave me. Which also translates into her fear of being rejected and abandoned by guys. Ironically, this is a little bit self-inflicted torture. 
Rebecca didn't have to go running off to Valencia's yoga class. She chose to do it. She actually left work to do it. And, you know, she's learning more about Valencia, which is what she wanted. But every minute is, is just torture for her. And it's just confirming all those things that she worried about. After yoga, there's so many backhanded frenemies comments. Valencia comments on Rebecca sweating and a few seconds later says she has to go do cardio because it's hard to break a sweat doing beginner's yoga. She's also trying to extract herself from Rebecca's invitation to get coffee. Valencia may want to creep on Rebecca's Facebook profile, but she doesn't really want Rebecca coming to her class. She looked aghast when Bex mentioned she bought a 20 pack and Valencia doesn't want to socialize yet. She isn't sure she trusts her. Meanwhile, Rebecca's playing her smarts card, playing up the Harvard lawyer thing, offering to do something nice yet over the top for Valencia so she looks good, makes a good impression. It also emphasizes that Rebecca is capable of something Valencia isn't sure how to do for herself, negotiating for her own yoga studio. Rebecca jokes about being Valencia's sugar mama because she bought a lot of yoga classes, indicating that she makes substantially more money than her. We find out much later on that Valencia actually was intimidated by the fact that Rebecca is smart and went to Harvard because she doesn't feel like she's strong in that area herself. This is like an early version of the Jack Battle rap. You know, they're not singing it out, but that is what's going on in their heads, in all their snarky little comments. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely the prelude to that. We also get our first look at Cup of Boba, and when Josh grabs Rebecca's arm to pull her to the side, she kind of glances down at it, and her look is electric. It's so subtle, but so real. Rachel did a great job of capturing that. Just the fact that he touched her makes her glow a little. Bex is so conscious of it. But come to find out, Josh is actually tracking Rebecca down in person to ask why she and Valencia have become friends. Knowing everything we know now, he seems so much more controlling. Josh wouldn't feel the need to go to such lengths if he didn't have something to hide or feel guilty about. You know, when I think about this happening in real life, you know, that he'd actually go and meet up with her in person because he's so worried about it. And later he keeps checking his phone at home base. And Rebecca says to him here, I've had many sexual partners since, indicating that Josh was the first person she had sex with, something that wasn't as clear in the last episode. And Josh lies to Greg, too, denying that he ever hooked up with Rebecca. He doesn't have to lie to him. I mean, Greg is his friend. Maybe Valencia would be mad at the thought of Josh's ex turning up in West Covina, but there's really no reason Josh couldn't tell Greg. It's also odd that he'd come back from camp at 16 and not tell any of his friends that he met a girl there and they had a summer romance. I mean, you'd think he'd want to brag about it or uh, tell him what happened. He's known these guys since childhood, so they were they were around. And, uh, you know, it's it's very surprising that he kept it a secret, not just from Valencia, but from everyone. When... Valencia and Rebecca are at Beck's house on the couch drinking wine. We get Valencia's backstory. We learn that she hooked up with her high school English teacher, but only did hand stuff. So when did she hook up with this English teacher? You know, there's the question, did she cheat on Josh too? 
we know that Valencia and Josh were already together by the time they were 16 because they were dating before Josh went to camp. It's possible that the English teacher thing happened in V's freshman or sophomore year, but it's definitely left open to interpretation. The fact that she tells Beck so easily means Valencia probably didn't cheat, but the ambiguous timeline does highlight the implications of this. Because then there's the question of, if it was before Josh, was this the first person Valencia was physical with in any capacity? And then, like, how did that define her future relationships? She still seems to think it was no big deal, even though Rebecca does. Also, while Rebecca assumes this high school English teacher was a man, and it probably was, I did entertain the idea that Valencia's English teacher could have been a woman. Fanfic, anybody? Valencia herself didn't confirm or deny either way, and the only did hand stuff is certainly ambiguous enough. Given her relationship with Beth in season three, it's interesting to think about. Likewise, now that we know V's by, Valencia's scene on the couch with Rebecca makes me wonder if she feels a little bit more than friendship for Bex here too, however temporarily. The scene on the couch is where both girls seem the most genuine about their friendship. At least until Rebecca says, what other agenda could I possibly have? Laughing because she feels uneasy and guilty about it. It's definitely ambiguous, you know, what these two are feeling for each other. Is it just friendship? Is it something more on one person's end or the other person's end? They're feeling each other out. And honestly, neither one of them have had a whole lot of female friendships. I mean, Valencia is very open and specific about it, but we also kind of get the impression that Rebecca hasn't had many friends, period, over the years. So it's it's definitely new for both of them. And they're trying to navigate and, and figure all of that out. When Paula finds out that Rebecca and Valencia are truly bonding as friends, she gets mad and calls her, you munchkin dumbass, which I totally didn't catch the first time around. The best insults are the ones that make you laugh. When I was thinking about nicknames for the Ecopians Corner segment, I seriously thought about calling my Josh Chan Trash Panda, but in an affectionate way. Later in this episode, Greg calls Rebecca a duplicitous minx, which is an awesome nickname too. When they get to spiders with the guys, Greg is watching Rebecca and Valencia like they're animals at the zoo or foreigners with different customs and he's trying to figure out their social norms. Santino has a great expression here. Next, we move into the feeling kind of naughty song. Rachel looks really good in this music video. I love how she's singing the lyrics throughout the music video, and then all of a sudden, when they get to the lines, I want to kill you and wear your skin like a dress, but then also have you see me in the dress. Rebecca, in real life, stops singing and just stares intensely creepily at Valencia while she's dancing. It's like the thoughts are in her head, and she's purposely not saying them out loud. I'm like, V's lucky Rebecca didn't still consider her a rival by season three. I love that they use Marty, this local who works at the grocery store, to out the fact that Rebecca and Josh dated to Greg. Rebecca tries to explain why she kissed Valencia, and in doing so, after she had so many shots of alcohol, she ends up telling her it was a circle of love, which included her and Josh loving each other years ago. It's like she can't help but blurt it out. 
Josh says to Valencia, do you remember that summer between 11th and 12th grade when I went to camp and we were technically on a break? Ooh, he used the word technically, never a good sign. Rebecca describes it as two months of summer love. Josh must have been pretty young in his class if he was 16 during the summer between 11th and 12th grade. Valencia asks Rebecca why she lied to her and Rebecca starts to say, because he, and then stops. The answer is because he told me to. She wasn't trying to hide the fact that she and Josh knew each other because they dated at summer camp. Josh was the one who was bent on keeping it a secret. I understand that feeling of wanting to be open and honest with someone so much that finally you can't keep it in anymore, no matter who told you to keep your mouth shut. Rebecca didn't agree with Josh about hiding it, yet Valencia would rather blame Rebecca than focus the larger share of the blame on Josh because she wants to keep her relationship intact. It's got to be really weird for Valencia, too, because from her perspective, she's like, okay, why are you here? What's going on? Why are you living in West Covina of all the places you could be? She doesn't realize that when Rebecca moved to West Covina, she had no idea Josh had a girlfriend. I wouldn't be surprised if Valencia thought Josh was already cheating on her at this point. It would be very easy to assume that Josh and Rebecca cooked this up together because that's what it looks like from where Valencia is sitting. She's thinking, this girl is coming after my Josh. Then there's Greg's role in all of this. Greg says, I'm going to go out on a limb and say telling the truth from the beginning would have been the better option here. Rebecca says he's right, and then sarcastically, thank you for pointing it out. Is this what you wanted? You're right. And then Greg says with a smile, I'm hungry. You want to go to a diner? I'm really not liking this Greg streak on the rewatch. He seems so bent on separating Rebecca and Josh so he can have her and is feeling a bit triumphant here rather than wholly sympathetic to Rebecca's feelings. Greg also dislikes the way Rebecca's acting too, so it's like he wants to be with her because she's smart and hot, but hates part of her behavior, so it's all very conflictual. Greg goes on to ask Rebecca if she'd like to get some flapjacks, and it's all smoothed over because she interprets it as him being nice to her when she doesn't deserve it. But I think it's a lot more passive-aggressive than that. He's using this opportunity to try to swing an impromptu date with her, and is even more enthused to try to win her over after knowing that she didn't just like Josh, she dated Josh. Greg and the audience both see him in the nice guy role. Greg thinks of himself as the nice guy, the whole trope of that. But is he really a nice guy? I kind of think he might have started out that way, but now he's got this chip on his shoulder and has all this resentment towards women. And as we find out, actually has some trouble with commitment, wants to leave people before he can be left. And he really puts her down a lot. You know, it, it's more noticeable on a rewatch. I, I definitely liked Greg better than Josh at this point on my first time through the series. But, you know, I, I definitely found early Greg a little problematic as well. It was more like the later half of season one when I got on board with the, the whole Greg-Rebecca thing. 
you know, like I, it's not to say that I don't like them together. I, I there are definitely moments when I do, and and later episodes I'll I'll talk about that. Uh, but it it was a little bit of a roller coaster for me, and I was never quite sure what the right thing was with with Greg and Rebecca. At the office, Paula tells Daryl there's menstrual blood in Luna bars, so he doesn't eat them all. Now that my Paula would not have done. Daisy, my best friend, who's so much like Paula, she was not a Slytherin like Paula. Uh, she, she was strategic, but also very good-hearted and selfless. I have a lot of people in my life that parallel the characters of this show, but there are clear differences too. My feeling is that all these characters are designed to be exaggerated and over the top, so there's a lot of things that they do that their real-life counterparts would never do or would do some like very toned down version of it yeah it's funny watching this the second time through how much you see paula slytherin traits we know that rachel has categorized her as a slytherin and i would agree um she's very ambitious and she's you know willing to do what it takes to to get to the gold essentially it's also mentioned that Mrs. Hernandez does rugby here. So it's not just parquet and poker, it's rugby too. We gotta get her backstory at some point. She sounds really interesting. Rebecca's wearing an all black dress here like she's in mourning. You still see Rebecca have a work success right after she crashed and burned at the club. That's how life is. One area might be going well while another area is in the toilet. I like that the show is covering all facets, not erasing the other things Rebecca has to deal with, like her job. I love Paula's Team Rebecca t-shirts. That inspired the name of the podcast, but I'm on everybody's team. Then Josh comes to Rebecca's job. I remember getting all nervous and excited when I saw this scene the first time. I've never had a boy show up at my work except one time when my Josh Chan applied there. And also, I guess, when a different ex of mine drove by on purpose because he knew I worked there. <laughs> Josh seems really impressed with Rebecca's workplace and that she won a big case. And actually, kudos to Josh here. I can't give kudos to Josh very often, so I, I try to give them when I can. <laughs> um, you know, he seeks Rebecca out and says, I realize I shouldn't have asked you to lie. The craziest stuff that happened last night, it was all my fault in a way because of the lying. And, you know, not every Josh Jan would do that. Uh, seek her out in person, ad admit that he was at fault and, you know, really try to make amends with her. He's cheerful and, and nice to her, even though Spiders was such a disaster. So that, you know, that that's actually, um, he he's holding himself accountable for his actions and, and that's hard to do. So I... I was pretty proud of Josh for coming by and trying to work things out. And then Paula's dance in the background when Josh asks Rebecca to dinner is super cute. This is basically how Daisy was anytime I had good luck with a boy or a relationship. So supportive. It's really rare to find someone so genuinely invested. This is the first time Paula actually sees Josh in person. And up until this point, he's just like a fantasy, an ideal, this story that she's heard about and seen on Facebook. And so 
watching Josh walk into the office unexpectedly. I mean, Paula must have been just as excited as Rebecca. You know, it's like seeing a, a rock star walk in or something. So let's move on to uh, the episode segments, uh, starting with Who Done It, which is how many times does Rebecca initiate plans to get Josh and how many times does Paula instigate? From this episode, we've got a lot of things going on. Paula has Rebecca change her Facebook push notifications so she can keep up on what Josh is doing better. Paula also suggests that they go to Spiders because Josh will be there. Rebecca friends Valencia on Facebook. Rebecca goes to Valencia's yoga class after she suggests it. Rebecca suggests that she and Valencia go to lunch and she can try to get her a good deal on a yoga studio. So in this episode, we're looking at Rebecca. Her tally is three and Paula, her tally is two. So adding that all together so far in the season, we've got Rebecca with six and Paula with three. Our Ring of Fire segment was pretty fun because I didn't actually catch it until I was actually you know, rewinding and kind of going back a little bit. I watched the episode all the way through and it, it took a while before I actually found uh, what the fire reference was. Marty at the grocery store says about Valencia, I see it now, she's smoking. And then when Paula sees Valencia's photo on Facebook, she exclaims, she is smoking. So really subtle fire reference. The, the Suicide Watch segment, there really was nothing. I didn't hear Rebecca or anyone else make reference to it. Uh, if you did, write in, let, let us know. As far as booze clues goes, we see Greg down a shot with the others at the club, but it's Rebecca who drinks too much. We, we don't really see Greg acting any differently than everybody else there. Our Nailed It segment, uh, basically paying attention to the color of Rebecca's nail polish, which Rachel has said is symbolic of how she feels and what's going on. Uh, there were actually a lot of no nail polish scenes this time. Rebecca and Paula at work when Rebecca's upset because Josh hasn't texted her back, no nail polish. Uh, when she and Paula go to Spiders, she's still not feeling good enough for nail polish. She's depressed and hopeless, thinking Josh is not going to follow up when she's in sweats alone on the couch, when she's at the grocery store in her tan cardigan, baggy t-shirt, gray sweats, and incomprehensibly snow boots in West Covina. No idea why. Like she just grabbed the first shoes she saw. And you can see that they were by her couch too, but I have no idea why she's got snow boots. Rebecca and Paula uh, at the office chatting about Valencia, uh, still no nail polish. None at the yoga class, none when she meets Josh at Cup of Boba because she was coming from work, uh, none when she's having lunch with Valencia. So uh, most of the episode goes by this way. And then finally we see her break out the black nail polish. Rebecca's at Spiders with Valencia, Josh, and Greg. And finally getting into Spiders symbolically represents getting in with Valencia. 
So this is the first time we see her wear nail polish in the episode, and it is black, the kind that, as we know from season three, she wears when she's more in the villain role or has duplicitous intentions, even if she's fooled herself into thinking otherwise. She also wears black nail polish in the fantasy scenes from Feeling Kind of Naughty. And then the next day at the office, after the disaster went down, she's wearing chipped black nail polish, which I thought was very symbolically appropriate. Rachel has said that she doesn't try to fix or, or cut out chip nail polish. She kind of lets it happen because that's what would happen in real life. So next we have the music notes segment, which is discussing what the songs are parroting or what they're inspired by. And there's quite a lot of music notes, actually. We get the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend theme for the first time. It wasn't in the pilot. And this is written by Rachel Bloom and Adam Schlesinger. I cannot say his name for the life of me. Uh, and the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend theme is a nod to animated theme songs of the 90s, according to Rachel, like the opening to The Nanny. Like back when I was a kid, there used to be more long musical openings to TV shows. They call it a saga cell, explaining the show in 30 seconds. There's actually a line from the Nanny theme song, She's the Lady in Red when everyone else is wearing tan. And that really sounds like Rebecca and her ability to stand out, be bold, and make West Covina think differently. The main character, Fran, on the Nanny also has an overbearing mother. And you can really see how the cartoon style in the Nanny theme song influenced Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So in the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend theme itself, the butter ad is in this, and it takes place in a strip mall like the one she sings I Have Friends in. It has one of the most important lines of the series. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. And it's supposed to set up that the show is self-aware. Rebecca says, that crazy ex-girlfriend is a sexist term. Next we have I'm So Good at Yoga, written by Rachel Bloom, Adam Schlesinger, Jack Dolgen, Dan Greger, and Audrey Washup. Sorry if I butchered any of those names. Uh, this one's a Bollywood parody. The way Rachel described it is that the way we do yoga in the West kind of bastardizes the Indian culture that it came from. It's basically the idea of a self-involved yoga instructor who's there to show off and make people in the yoga class feel bad about themselves, which I'm sure a lot of people have experiences with. So pretty straightforward, but really well done. And the third song is Feeling Kind of Naughty Tonight, written by Rachel Bloom, Adam Schlesinger, and Jack Dolgen. And Rachel describes this as a girl crush being testosterone field aggression instead of being cute. She says the song was originally called, I want to fuck you with my jealousy dick. <laughs> she, obviously they had to change it because of the CW censors, but they also thought they needed to rewrite it anyway. The original headlines like, I want to take your intestines and make them into a smoothie. <laughs> and Aline wasn't too keen on that. So gosh, I hope they release some of this stuff. Uh, it would be fun to hear. So there's a lot of references in, in this one when she says, make my body like your body, like that film of Liberace's. The film is behind the candelabra. Liberace has a relationship with a younger man, Thorson. 
and the synopsis says it gradually becomes clear that Liberace is trying to mold Thorson into a younger version of himself. He asks his plastic surgeon, Dr. Jack Starts, to transform Scott's face to more closely resemble his own and makes an unsuccessful attempt to formally adopt him. Thorson soon turns to drugs as he becomes more angry and frustrated with Liberace trying to control him, as well as Liberace's obsession to publicly hide their romance at any cost. So, very interesting. I have not actually seen that film. And, of course, this Feeling Kinda Naughty Tonight song is a spoof of Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl. This one's really obvious. The gold dresses that Rebecca and Valencia wear to the club are reminiscent of Katy Perry's dress in the music video. Katy is pe petting a cat on the bed in the same pose as Rebecca, but Katy's cat is real and Rebecca's cat is fake and creepy and looks like it's made out of cardboard when she pets it. <laughs> a lot of the visual shots in Feeling Kinda Naughty are directly from I Kissed a Girl. They do that really well uh, and the pillow fight is taken from there. One of the lines in I Kissed a Girl is, hope my boyfriend don't mind it. It's interesting that so many people consider a girl kissing another girl not cheating when one or both of them are in committed relationships with a guy. That always seemed like a double standard to me. Even in the show, Josh isn't mad about it or anything, you know, he's fine. So there's this concept of two girls acting bi or like lesbians out in public or around guys to get attention or make them look sexier. And I've always really hated this when it wasn't true bisexuality or a lesbian couple. I'm just not a fan of someone using girl-girl stuff to get a third person's attention. To me, it seems disrespectful to people who are actually bi or lesbian, like making a farce of it. Valencia is fine with her and Rebecca pecking on the lips, but as soon as Bex kisses her for real, V's all like, what's wrong with you? We were just being cute. Cute kissing for attention. She actually says that out loud. So that's exactly the kind of behavior I'm, I'm not into. She's just doing it to get attention from people in the club. And I think it's kind of interesting within the original I Kissed a Girl music video, Katy Perry doesn't even kiss a girl. You never see that happen. It's all about the idea of it rather than the actual experience. And this whole reference goes back to Paula saying that Rebecca is Taylor Swift and Valencia is Katy Perry. But Rebecca ends up doing this Katy Perry spoof song. So what is that supposed to make the viewers think? Paula is viewing Rebecca like the good girl protagonist, but what she actually does here fits more into the other role. I don't know that much about Taylor Swift or Katy Perry and find both of them problematic, and they don't necessarily fit their archetypes in real life. Again, the situation is a lot more nuanced than that, but they represent certain things in our culture, even if it changes over time. And I kind of think this is an early comment on the villain in my own story concept because Paula doesn't view Rebecca like a villain, and yet some of the things we see in the show make us question that. There's also a Taylor Swift reference in here later, so you kind of see her being like both of them. We'll get to that. The next segment addresses the themes in the episode, and the big one here is frenemies and female friendship in general. 
So on the topic of frenemies, when Rebecca and Valencia are in the grocery store and Valencia is telling Rebecca she should come to one of her yoga classes, Greg is all like, why are their voices so high? It's this over-enthusiastic, over-complimentary, squealing, cheek-kissing, hugging, you know, you're so beautiful kind of thing. Um, and it also goes along with the concept of a squad, which we'll delve into second season, but there's this underlying falseness to it. And it's really hard to watch. <laughs> like, um, some people are oblivious to it, even, you know, like, especially guys, not all guys are in touch with that. And they just think it's girls being girls, but it's definitely hard to watch when you know what's going on. As far as the Taylor Swift, Katy Perry thing goes, it's the idea that girls can't bond when they're competition for each other. Paula says women of equal sexual viability hate each other, even if they pretend to like each other. And that is how it's worked since the day vaginas were invented. And Rebecca counters that and says that perpetuates the very misogynist myth that women can't get along. She's still trying to present herself as an independent feminist here. I kind of think they're both right. I think that the competition thing is always going to continue to some degree, that it's not going to ever completely change. And I think that sometimes women do have to watch out for one another. I think that sometimes that is a real fear and and not just a anxiety-driven fear. But I also think that it's totally possible for women to be friends, you know, even if they're both attractive and good looking and all of that. It, it really just comes down to trust and loyalty and what kind of relationship you have with each other. And, you know, you can hopefully tell the difference. I'm not sure if this changes when you're in a long-term relationship. I kind of like to hear from people on that. If, you know, once you got married or uh, moved in with a guy or, or ended up in this really established relationship, did you start feeling differently towards other girls? Did you feel confident in your relationship and, and not worry about the competition of other people? Or did you still feel that competition or, or worry that someone was going to be interested in your boyfriend or husband? I don't really have experience with that. You know, I've never been in a relationship with a guy where I felt he was committed enough to not have to worry about that. There's never been a moment, you know, when I could just relax and not have that anxiety because I've never had someone commit to me as a boyfriend. I think there are situations where, you know, you can be friends with a girl who's equally as attractive as you and, and really ship them with the person they're with or the person that they're interested in. And you can be really excited for them and really think that they're a great couple and there's no competition or jealousy or anything like that at all. That's totally possible. Um, you know, when you see a good couple, you hopefully, you know, you ship them and you're happy for them. And most of the time, like we're both on completely different tracks and, you know, we really just want our friends to be happy. And 
And sometimes you just meet a person who doesn't like you. And no matter what you do, they're not going to like you. And you can be really nice and you can invite them to everything. And they're just, they've made up their mind not to like you. And, and maybe they're, they feel like your competition, even if you're not. It's, it's really a hard line to walk. So the female friendship side of the theme is that Rebecca can't pay attention to Paula or spend time with her when she's obsessing over Josh or Valencia in relation to Josh. She doesn't want to hang out with Paula when they don't get into spiders. And when Paula shares how terrible her children are and clearly wants to talk about it, Rebecca completely ignores her and brings the conversation back around to what she's focused on. Bex even ditches their conversation entirely when she discovers that Valencia is teaching a yoga class right then and asks Paula to do the rest of the work on their legal case. This is one of my least favorite Rebecca traits and one I don't relate to. Paula is such a good friend to her that you really want to see Rebecca return that in kind. And I feel like people express that online a lot too, is Rebecca's either being mean to Paula or lying to Paula or making Paula doubt herself. Um, you know, I, I feel like the online community is uh, really sensitive to that and it's, it's painful to watch. Paula sees Rebecca's Instagram selfie with Valencia at the club. She's hashtagged spiders all three different ways. And then she puts in a hashtag, this is where the cool people are. And it makes Paula feel bad. It's the whole concept of having an exclusive squad where part of the purpose is to leave people out publicly to make the squad members feel better about themselves and up their status. So there's a callback to Taylor Swift here and her infamous squad. Another theme in this episode is Rebecca being a child in comparison to the sophisticated adult Valencia. There's actually a lot of moments where this happens in episode two. And it really struck me as a, a theme on this rewatch. Rebecca disobeys the bouncer, the authority figure, at Spiders and literally crawls like a toddler to get inside. She doesn't wear nail polish most of this episode, even in places where it would make sense to do so. And then Paula... Uh, in one of the scenes at the office says, Mama got you the strawberry donuts from the place around the corner. So already this early, she's using the term mama to describe her relationship to Rebecca. And Rebecca, meanwhile, squeals and bounces in her seat like a kid. At yoga, Valencia, also in an authority position as the yoga teacher, tells Bex if she wants to just stay in child's pose, it's totally fine. And Rebecca pushes back with, nope, I'm an adult. And then in the next scene, Rebecca orders off the kids menu. <laughs> in part because she didn't want all the health food stuff that the restaurant specialized in. And instead she ordered more standard American fare. But you see this reference to her being a child throughout. She dresses like a schoolgirl during the feeling kind of naughty song with knee socks and pigtails. She's having a sleepover with friends in the montage. And let's go back to the my father didn't leave me comment in I'm so good at yoga. This adds another layer to the Rebecca is a child theme in this episode. 
The triangle between her, Josh, and Valencia goes back to the family system's role Rebecca was in as a child. Valencia shares some characteristics with Naomi, Rebecca's own mother. She's critical of her, if not quite as bluntly as Naomi, and this causes Rebecca to try hard to impress both of them. Greg says to Rebecca at the club about Valencia, do you do everything she tells you to do? And you actually see her look back and forth between the both of them for a moment, um, and then she, she ends up following Valencia. And for the longest time, Bex did everything her mom told her to, so it, it makes sense that she would been like this with, with V. Rebecca has a love-hate relationship with her mom and a love-hate relationship with Valencia. Bex was in a triangulation between her mother and father, so it's not surprising that she falls into another one orchestrated by Josh. In season three, Rebecca sings about her relationship with her mom being her first failed romance, but finally the cute boy is asking her to dance in quite a Freudian fashion, and the same type of thing is played out with Valencia here. It's not that she wants something romantic or sexual in the creepy way it came out, it's kind of that being accepted by and respected by her mom and Valencia is almost as important to her and her development as winning Josh's commitment is. Like, if her mom and Valencia are impressed, it would provide Rebecca with validation that she's unable to give herself. Basically, Dr. Ocopian has her work cut out for her. So looking at the poll results from last episode, uh, the question was, which way do you generally see the world? And coming in at 25%, folks on Twitter said, only two hours from the beach. 37% said, realistically, we're three hours. And in first place at 38%, it's people who say two are dumb. So slight glass of empty take from our listeners, but it was actually pretty split. So we also have a, a comment on one of the podcast questions. Lisa answered the podcast question, what in your life looked good on paper, but turned out to be a disappointment? Lisa says, when I moved to another state to work at Walt Disney World, I thought it was going to be the best thing I ever did in my life where all my dreams would come true. While I was incredibly elated at first and completely oblivious that anything bad could possibly ever happen, it actually led up to the lowest point in my entire life. While I won't elaborate on the details, I hope to never reach that point in my life again. In retrospect, I think my experiences in Florida might be part of why I related to Rebecca being so excited and oblivious at first when she moved to West Covina until reality set in, and also why the pilot episode made me a little uncomfortable until I saw more of the show. So that's from Lisa, and I do think some of the best episodes are the ones that make you uncomfortable in some ways. And I also heard the same thing about Walt Disney World from several people who worked there, that it wasn't necessarily the idyllic experience they expected and they had to start really low on the totem pole and it was hard and the behind the scenes was was not quite as magical and we also have a comment from heather who works as a therapist uh, she had a comment about the the gabapentin medication on rebecca's nightstand in episode one uh, i had talked about some of the possible things it could be used for and she wanted to chime in and express that gabapentin is also used for anxiety. When it was being used by doctors for seizures and things like that, they found it had a side effect of calming anxiety. So it's sometimes prescribed for that, but it's also somewhat experimental. 
So it's not always prescribed for anxiety, nor is it FDA approved for anxiety. So it's kind of interesting that they ended up choosing that drug. We don't know for sure why, but there is a connection back to anxiety in any case. So thanks guys for writing in and sharing some things with us. The poll question for this week is, let's clear this up. How do you spell the name of West Covina's club? And then there's three different ways of spelling spiders. <laughs> so, you know, if you're a grammar Nazi, weigh in. I'm going to have the poll question up on Twitter. And I have a couple podcast questions. And feel free to answer even if you're listening to this a year from now and not in real time. I know I go back and listen to other podcast episodes from ages ago and really good discussions on crazy ex-girlfriend or other topics and just feel free to chime in anytime. The first question is, why do we think Rebecca's urge to Facebook friend Valencia was stronger than the urge to do what Josh requested? And the second question is, why do you think Josh never told his guy friends about his involvement with Rebecca at summer camp? So I will be posting those on Facebook and Twitter and let me know what you guys think. And please rate and review if you're able. Uh, it helps other people find the podcast. You can reach out to the podcast or start discussions on Facebook at facebook.com slash Team West Covina, Twitter at Team West Covina, or Instagram under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. If you don't plan to join us for a Copian's Corner, thanks for listening. So for those of you who are still here, welcome to Acopian's Corner. This is probably going to be one of the tougher Acopian Corners for me, um, as well as one of the longer ones. This episode brought up a lot of stuff for me, and it's kind of not the stuff I want to start off with, but unfortunately, the second episode is definitely where this topic is. So I'm going to try to talk about it, but it's kind of like starting at the end of a story rather than the beginning or skipping most of the middle. It's just, it's a really hard topic to talk about in a way that you're actually communicating what you want to communicate. I don't know if you guys have seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon, but it's really good and it has a lot of parallels with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I bring it up because when we meet the main character, she's going through a really messy separation from her husband, and there's every sign it will lead to divorce. Drunk and teary-eyed, she gets on stage at a comedy club one night to vent her frustrations and pour her heart out, and turns out people liked it. Making the pain funny and getting it off her chest became a coping device for Midge, and that's sort of the place I'm in too, so I hope that gives you some kind of context for what follows. A Copian's Corner, as a reminder, is the place where we discuss uh, personal stuff, how we related to this episode, what it brought up for us in our own lives, and I'd be very happy to share any listener stories for any of these episodes if there's something it brought up for you. So I'd like to introduce you to Catnip and Cheetah, the Valencia and Josh Chan of my world, if you will. Basically, in the Acopian's Corner segment, I'll give everybody dumb but memorable nicknames that are somehow relevant. Catnip's personality is pretty similar to Valencia's, whereas Cheetah's, as mentioned above, is more in the Greg and dominant Nathaniel camps. But 
plot-wise, I related him to the Josh arc especially. The name Cheetah is a little bit of a double entendre, but it's also his favorite animal, which is why I laughed so hard when we learned it was Nathaniel's favorite animal too. While I'm generally in the Rebecca role, it's a little flipped and more complicated in this episode because in my life, it was actually Catnip who initialized acting that way towards me. She's legitimately bisexual. It was not for an ulterior motive or anything like that. So this is almost like a parallel story to this episode. It, it's so strange how much I related to this in sort of a haphazard way. So there's this moment in I'm so good at yoga when Rebecca's imagining and she feels conflicted about this whole thing. On one hand, it's, she's so cool. I want to be her friend. I want to get close to her. And on the other, it's, I'll never be as good as her. Josh will always love her more. And that was kind of the conflict for Catnip after she learned that Cheetah had feelings for me much later on. The interesting thing about Catnip is that she had a crush on me from the day we first met and told everyone in our group the same night except for me, but including Cheetah, when she was literally on her first date with him. He'd finally worn her down after a year of pushing in classic Greg fashion. Catnip had gotten her heart broken by another guy she was actually into, and two months later, when Cheetah tried to kiss her without asking, she just didn't say no. The stuff of fairy tales, right? The day I met Cheetah for the first time was also the day of his and Catnip's first date. You can't make this stuff up. Of all the days and all the years, I met them both at the same time. We were all out at a social event, meeting up with a larger group. So not only was it the same day, I somehow managed to be on their first date with them. <laughs> so weird, right? You can't get more Rebecca Bunch than that. Of course, Cheetah and I didn't like each other that way at the time. We didn't even know each other. It's only looking back that there's this glaring irony. So that scene with Valencia and Rebecca on the couch, drinking wine, rubbing their feet together. Gabrielle is so good in this scene, giving depth to Valencia's character. And that's how Catnip and I were at our best. It was genuine on both sides, and we felt close, bonded. Similar to Valencia, Catnip felt like she had a lot of guys who liked her, but felt shy around females because part of her wanted to see them naked, and that made things awkward at best. If she did have a close female friend, she often looked up to her or crushed on her. She confessed to having a crush on me a few months in, and I was really clear with Catnip from the beginning that I was only bisexual now, as far as I could tell, not bisexual. Sexuality is fluid, and while I was naturally bisexual in high school, it seemed to just dry up by the time I turned 18 and never returned. If it ever does, great, I'll have more options. But I told Catnip that while she was one of only a couple girls I'd ever felt even mildly attracted to, for me what that really amounted to was cuddling and playing with each other's hair, not a relationship. I was comfortable with us being affectionate towards one another and considered her a good friend, but that was as far as it went for me. Cheetah was used to Catnip's girl tendencies, and it didn't bother him, nor did it turn him on. He was just used to it. For years we were all just good friends and part of a larger group. It's tough to talk about how I related to the rest of this episode because it jumps so far ahead in my story that you miss a lot of crucial information. So much of this episode is how Catnip views me right now, years later, in part because she bought into this pervasive trope. 
Paula views things from a Slytherin perspective. She says, you befriend the enemy and you get more face time with Josh. If you really neutralize her, maybe she'll give you some solo time with him. I'm sure this is what Catnip thought I was doing, except that I was her friend first, genuinely her friend, for years before Cheetah and I liked each other at all. I even felt bisexual towards Catnip first. None of that was a ploy. In fact, it couldn't be because being demisexual, I, I can't be close to someone physically if I don't genuinely feel attracted to them. When I would try to date strangers, I couldn't even hug the guys or hold hands because it was so all or nothing for me. I'd spend most of the date thinking, please don't touch me, please don't touch me, and miss part of the movie attempting to keep at least three inches of space between us at all times. I cared about Catnip's well-being and knew her well enough to recognize what she was missing. But this trope of befriending the enemy is so common that when it's not the case, the girl in question has trouble believing it. And I get that. The truth is, I hate the idea of frenemies. I can't do the frenemy thing. Even if it would be objectively strategic or beneficial, I just can't put the time or effort towards something like that because it makes me feel sick. The idea of having to hang out with someone you don't like or trust and act super fake with them. No. That brings us to feeling kind of naughty, which Catnip would probably also take at face value and think I was literally Rebecca. <laughs> but Catnip felt conflicted herself. She hated that Cheetah had feelings for me and didn't want to believe it, but a part of her also wanted me to have feelings for her. And what she saw as a double rejection made Catnip pretty much want to get into a cat fight. This song captures all those conflicting feelings in one blunt swoop. But don't get me wrong, I felt conflictual towards Catnip too sometimes, just not in the exact same way the song portrays. Cheetah didn't want me to tell Catnip we had feelings for each other yet because, as Josh says about Valencia, she can get mad. I mean, really mad. <laughs> I had no conception of how mad he was talking about. It went way past anything I could even imagine, right into illegal territory. That's a story for another time. Season three, perhaps. Anyway, I couldn't say anything to Catnip while they were still together without making the situation worse. If I did, it would look like I was trying to break them up, and he would be mad at me. And if I didn't, she would think I was holding back information, and she would be mad at me. And I really hated being put in that position, and I would spend all day thinking about, you know, what is the right decision here? And I could never figure it out. I spent so much time thinking about it and worrying about it. And I, you know, I just wanted to make the right decision. And it was not at all clear what that was. And I just go over it and over it and be like, okay, there's got to be some kind of loophole. Or, you know, how do I make this better when Cheetah's not ready to tell her yet? And he thinks he's going to lose her as a friend. And she's going to be more and more upset the longer he waits. And it was really messy. Well, I felt close to Catnip and cared about her as a friend. She would frustrate me at times because she thought about breaking up with Cheetah at least once a week. Meanwhile, the whole situation was excruciatingly painful for me because despite going on countless dates, attempting to prove there are other fish in the sea, as someone who identifies as a gray sexual or demisexual or somewhere on that spectrum, I only liked someone new once every five years, 
10 years. I'd been waiting over 20 years just to have a full-fledged committed boyfriend. If a person actually became important to me, I couldn't afford to just dismiss it, especially if they had feelings for me too. It would mean literally a decade of loneliness. So I realized that my situation is kind of unique in that way, in, in that it, it's, it's easier for most other people to, to find someone else. But more importantly, the relationship between Cheetah and Catnip was toxic by anyone's standards, including their own. It's not a good sign if you have to get drunk and take anxiety meds before you can tolerate intimacy with your boyfriend. I mean, normally that's a red flag, right? Catnip complained that Cheetah didn't go out enough, and there were times when it's like, I get it, but you know you're not compatible, and sitting on this is making all three of us miserable. It was sort of like having a little sister that drove you crazy sometimes, but you were also really good friends. And the really good friends part was always bigger than the parts of her that frustrated me. One of the best parts about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is that they develop their characters fully. So let me give a shout out to some of Catnip's more positive qualities. Like Valencia, she had a visual eye, whether it came to fashion, decorating a room, or making intricate crafts. She was attentive, charming, and funny. While we had a lot in common, we were total opposites in some ways, too. While I later learned that she wasn't quite as good a friend to me as I thought, long before Cheetah and I had any feelings for each other, I still look back on our time together fondly and can separate it from the vengeance she wreaked afterwards. After all, the situation's a lot more nuanced than that. If you've got a story from your life that relates back to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, feel free to send it in. That's it for episode two of Team West Covina. Thanks so much for listening and hope to see you next time. Bye. Bye.